0: Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies.
1: This week, Mike and Jude are joined by C. Raja Mohan, senior fellow with the Asia Society Policy Institute in Delhi and visiting research professor at the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. They discuss India's policy transformations and strategic outlook.
2: Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green from the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, Australia, joined by Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair at CSIS. We're joined today by Siraj Mohan, who is a household name for anyone who follows geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific. Raj has been a journalist, a scholar, a government advisor, written for the Indian Express, putting up quite a bit on foreignpolicy.com recently. He's now with the Asia Society Policy Institute based in Delhi. He's previously also been based in Singapore and Washington, PhD from JNU. Really unparalleled books explaining India's strategic transformation. Cannot recommend Crossing the Rubicon about 15 years ago, Impossible Allies. I have a small cameo in that. I like to think I put the impossible in Impossible Allies. And more recent works on Indian naval strategy, on Modi's foreign policy strategy, Raj, delighted you can join us to shed light on India's strategic trajectory and how you see the Indo-Pacific. So we we start, as you know, because I understand you're a loyal listener, trying to understand how our, our guests got into this business. I remember once, some years ago, you and I were comparing students we'd had, and you said, you know, I taught a famous Marxist, and I said, I taught a famous neocon, and we were trying to decide which was a more significant contribution to history, but you've been a journalist, a scholar, you've been on the Intelligence Advisory, National Security Advisory Board. Growing up and getting into this, is this what you thought you would be doing? Let me
1: thank you for inviting me. As I said, I'm a great fan of the IHS board. Uh, to, I, I was uh, doing my stuff on nuclear physics till my master's and hoping to get a career in, in the nuclear energy industry. But I, The year I finished my master's, there was India's nuclear test. That kind of drew me into international relations, uh, studying international relations. And for a science student, uh, the Nehru University was the only place I could register for a PhD program. So so I started working on India, India's nuclear policy, non-proliferation regime, and how India was dealing with it. Uh, Once I finished my PhD, I joined the Think Tank. Uh, At that time, there was only one in Delhi, the Institute for uh, Defense Studies and Analysis. So there I began to look at arms control, great power relations and the transformation in the 1980s of how the intersection of great power relations and weapons technology was, was unfolding. So as I began to track that, I mean, I also started writing a column for one of India's leading newspapers, The Hindu, writing on India's foreign policy and on international relations. Since then, I've taught at two universities, I've been in think tanks, but essentially still mapping the transformations in India's engagement with the world, certainly after 1991, and the India's rejigging of India's relations with the major powers, with its own neighborhood, and with the with the global regimes.
2: You know, like other physicists I know who became international relations experts, I'm thinking of Harold Brown, former Secretary of Defense, Caltech president, who was a mentor of mine. I was a his research assistant once. I find physicists bring an incredible clarity to political analysis because they understand pressure and flow and all of that, which you definitely do. And so with that kind of, as the frame, you've written a lot on the transformation in India's strategic outlook, but you have also pointed out there's a deep, deep historical precedent for this in the British experience, Curzonian foreign policy, and in the Moguls' foreign policy strategy. So you're rooted in history for sure, but starting us off, what explains what appears to be a pretty significant transformation in India's strategic outlook. Is it the domestic politics? Is it the rise of China? Has the U.S. suddenly become more likable? That seems least likely. But what explains big picture this transformation you've chronicled in India's strategic outlook on the region? So
1: I would say two major developments in the turn of the 1990s. One was the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Because for almost 60 years before that, the Soviet Union was a dominant influence in the India's mind, emerging India, which was discovering nationalism in the interwar period. So the beginning of the consciousness on Indian nationalism coincided with the formation of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was the only other power that supported national liberation, besides the U.S., of course, Wilson and Lenin. But uh, as the exigencies of Europe came to the fore, the U.S. could not take the kind of positions on decolonization that it would have probably taken otherwise, and the Soviet Union remained a champion of decolonization, opposing Western hegemony and imperialism. So I think that is embedded in India's political elite. The second was the, it was not just on the nationalism, anti-imperialism dimension, but Indians made a choice to follow the Soviet model of economics, but we never became communist. The notion thanks to the great crash uh, in the Wall Street in 29, the great performance of the Soviet Union in the 30s and the 40s, the idea that Soviet Union offered a shorter cut to developing an underdeveloped country. So we had that, actually, and we had a lot of people who were trained in London, uh, in uh, our economists who really believed in the socialist stuff. But then in Asia, everyone was a socialist in the middle of the 20th century. And, and I think India kind of lingered on far longer, So these two influences are one of the belief that Soviet Union was a friend. Second, that the Soviet economic model was good. And this was reinforced by the problems we had with the Anglo-American powers. The partition of India, after Britain united the subcontinent over a period of 150 years, just in the last uh, few years, its policies led to the breakup. And India, many Indians hold Britain responsible for the division of the subcontinent and the kind of messy partition and the independence that followed. But we know for a fact that FDR, uh, Roosevelt, uh, wanted to support India's independence. In fact, he tried to pressurize Churchill to support India's independence. But then Churchill was absolutely adamant, refusing to support India's independence. And there we had the Atlantic Charter, uh, where actually talks about freedom of uh, peoples, and here, Roosevelt thought that could be leveraged to move Churchill. But then Churchill was adamant. He actually stood up in Parliament and said, this does not apply to India. So I think the hostility to Anglo-American powers, and then the Anglo-Americans siding with Pakistan in the post-partition conflicts. And that made the relationship much worse. So what happened in '91? Then we kind of broke through this. the three paradigms. One, the Soviet Union could no longer be a model. And the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, meant that it could no longer be the lodestar to shape India's trajectory. And uh, the India's economic reform, away from the socialist economics, this actually underestimated the, the reorientation of the Indian economy in the 1990s. Turned India away from a state-driven economic development to markets, to capital, liberalisation. India always had a proto-capitalist class, and that was kind of kept under the jackboots of the the Fabian socialists, and once you lifted that, you had actually uh, these people uh, flowering and then the doors opened for engagement uh, uh, with, with the US. And then you remember all this stuff about non proliferation Kashmir. So we Americans blew the opportunity, I would say, in the 1990s by focusing on Kashmir, by focusing on, on the nuclear stuff. And that's where, Mike, you came in and uh, the Bush administration really broke through those limitations. He hyphenated India from Pakistan put the nuclear question aside, and took the very important framework which said, look, U.S. must help India rise, and the rising India is actually in America's interest. So I think that provided the basis, the economic, the geopolitical basis for a fresh thinking in our relations. And since then, we've really not looked back. There might have been ups and downs, but the trajectory has been clear evolution of India-U.S. partnership.
2: You know, there have been fits and starts. And as I wrote in one of my books, there were certain presidents who looked at India and thought India's success, India becoming a net export of security is fundamentally in U.S. interests, regardless of alignment. So you mentioned FDR. John F. Kennedy was that way. He appointed John Kenneth Galbraith and he looked at India not as a country that had to be on our side in the Cold War, but a country that could establish a broader balance Ronald Reagan in the 80s, um, clearly in National Security Council meetings, said India's success, whether India's aligned or not, is our success. And that was largely, I think, what animated the Bush administration. I think the Clinton administration towards the end had that desire, and Bill Clinton certainly did, but they were too encumbered by the non-proliferation and multilateralist and other, and other agendas, and frankly, very focused on China. And as you wrote in impossible allies, a lot of the U.S.-India rapprochement on the U.S. side was done by Japan experts and NATO experts who didn't know any better and sort of naively stumbled into this strategic transformation. But what about on the Indian side? What Manmohan Singh was a champion as prime minister and as finance minister because he, I think, wanted to move away from Fabian socialism. But so was Modi. I mean, it's become bipartisan. So can you tell us about the the political transformation within India that allowed this strategic trajectory?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say really start with, actually, you mentioned Ronald Reagan. So Rajiv Gandhi was the first one, actually, this is before the Cold War ended. So he didn't really have to prove his loyalty to his mother's policies, but as a young man, uh, he was willing to take a fresh look at India's foreign policy. And if you recall Reagan's invitation to Rajiv Gandhi, the attempt to build a new relationship, the first attempts at selling weapons to India, under the Reagan administration. So I think that push was being made and Rajiv was quite open uh, to the ideas. But I think internally convincing the Congress party, convincing the political class, we can make the big moves with the US. And that didn't take off. So the first time that was made, it didn't really succeed in the, in the second half of the 80s. And in 91, it became a compulsion for us in any case. We had to find a way of dealing with the United States after the end of the Cold War. But then the US was, as we said, uh, was not ready in the... In the Clinton years. But I think things came together in the 2000s, from 2001 onwards, when the Bush administration came, took a fresh look, and going back to Condi Rice's article in Foreign Affairs, saying that we're going to look at India not through the South Asian prism, but through the larger Asian prism, and that India must be part of the balance of power, favoring freedom in Asia. So that provided the external context. But internally, the Suspicion was deeply held, and you saw the reason why the nuclear deal took so long. Because while Manmohan Singh was for it, and before him, Vajpayee was for it. Getting the political class to trust the United States because of the Pakistan factor, because of the multiple sanctions uh, on the nuclear issue from the mid 1970s. So it was really so the political class was not willing, was not ready. The technical establishment which couldn't get visas to get to the U.S. They said, look, how do we deal with this? And the security establishment said, look, these guys are pro-Pakistan and they're closer to China. So I think it needed a bit by bit, bit by bit breaking of this resistance. But I would give a lot of credit for the Americans to be for being patient. Uh, that's not a known virtue in the United States. But I would say if you take their trajectory over the 20 years, I think there was that consistent effort. And in India, I would say, Rao, Rajpayee, I'm am Modi, we're lucky, lucky to have people who served for reasonably long periods in a parliamentary democracy, uh, and to actually shepherd this relationship uh, at a time when there was huge resistance uh, within the system. But I think we've crossed those humps one by one. And today, I think we're clearly uh, at, a, at a different place.
2: I don't think historians or scholars give enough credit to the US for being patient about supporting powers that help restore a balance of power. I mean, the best and most feminist example would be U.S.-China relations in the 70s and 80s, but, but, but Japan and India, and when it's in U.S. interests, uh, there is some capacity to be patient and work these relationships. So I recall some of the biggest obstacles to the strategic transformation, the alignment of U.S. and India more were, number one, the non-alignment mentality, particularly in the Ministry of External Affairs. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but the Army. I mean, the Army had Pakistan. It had domestic insurgencies. I always felt it was the Navy and to some extent the Air Force that were more focused on the China challenge. But that seems to have changed. The the, the PLA killed two dozen Indian Army boys two years ago. And the non-alignment will tell us about it. It seems to have sort of shifted a bit. See, one of the Problems with
1: the idea of non-alignment, I mean, it has had so many interpretations that as a neutrality between the major powers or as anti-Western, actually, in its orientation. So I think it had, one, the anti-colonial component. So that's why it gets its north-south dimension. Two, it has this, uh, the Nehru and others were really great liberal internationalists. I mean, they would have happily gone along with the one-world People and the multilateralists, the federalists in the U.S. who said, look, uh, institutions, we should not have this competition. We should have international solutions to international problems. And the third aspect was really the actual geopolitics. I I think that's where the the problem was there. I think there were two fundamental questions. One, Nehru believed that India must be a great power. And that the U.S. policies were actually preventing India's construction of of a regional order with itself as a center, uh, which I think is probably not accurate, but but that was the perception. So he actually, though we called it non-alignment, Nehru actually actively opposed a lot of the US actions, starting with creation of Seattle, CENTO, uh, military assistance to Pakistan, and above all, China policy. So that brings, I think, more than non-alignment. It was the notion of Asian solidarity against the West or a post-Western order in Asia we can build in partnership with Asia. So India ended up with a policy of consistently trying to befriend China or underestimating the problems with China and overestimating the problems with the United States. So so you had the worst of all outcomes, which is really believing that China is our partner and the US was the problem. But thanks to Xi Jinping, I think now it's quite clear that uh, today, thanks to the policies of the last thirty years, the U.S. is our biggest partner on trade, on technology, on uh, Indian people-to-people relationship, and China is our biggest challenge. So I think one of the developments of the last decade has been really under Xi Jinping It's really the the, the helped us clarify, you know, and cured us of the sinophilia that was so built in into the foundational ideology of India. We're Asian, Asian brothers, we must stand up, Asia for Asians, uh, all that. And, and we were not cured of this in 1962, despite the war with China. But today, I think we are largely done with it. My, my sense is today, uh, our minister, Jashankar talks about an, exclusive, an inclusive Asia. He talks about the U.S. as the resident power. Exactly the opposite of what Nehru said, which is keep the Americans out. We're we going to build a nation order with China. Today we say we need the U.S. to balance China. And finally, after the end of the Cold War, we said we want a multipolar world. But American people power was the problem and that we need the Russians and the Chinese. But today we discover actually it is the Chinese power that's the problem. So the danger is not of a unipolar world, but of a unipolar Asia that fundamentally squeezes India in multiple ways on the frontier in South Asia, with Pakistan, with Sri Lanka, in the maritime domain today, and in the multilateral institutions. So I think finally we've broken out of that. And the question is today, how effectively, how quickly we can build this relationship with the United States, and not just with the US, but with the West as a whole, the US allies in Asia, who are members of the Quad. That's a challenge. I think the direction is set. Now I would say it's really the working out the broad details. On, On the army question, once the partition you know it's it's a fascinating history you know Indian Army under the British was an awkward oriented army. Uh, we had 1 million soldiers in the first world war we had two million in the second world war essentially contributing to the global balance in a ways in which uh, we don't advertise it uh, and uh, others don't talk about it uh, but what happened after partition was the new frontiers that got created with Pakistan so defending those new frontiers with Pakistan, was further complicated by the fact that we had a new frontier with China. Uh, in the 19th century, it was British India that was exercising power in Tibet, and once China occupied, gained control of Tibet, uh, China became our neighbour, uh, and dealing with the Chinese and a large centralising communist state, that presented, we did not recognise it then. But today we see the challenges of having a strong state on the India's northern borders presents a huge historic uh, challenge for India. And I think the army now has woken up to the challenge. And I think once we get all the Pakistan question today, I think the clarity on China is the principal challenge.
0: Raj, picking up on that, we're going to talk about BRICS in a minute, but at a high level, I wonder if you can talk a bit more about how India's relationship with China has evolved over the last decade. Because of course, you just mentioned, or Mike did at least, the, the border disputes which have grown in hostility over the past several years, driven by Xi Jinping. But if we were at a high level looking at the China-India relationship, still very important trade partners. We just saw this summit in BRICS, which showed that they can be in the same room together. So we have both BRICS and border disputes. If Sinophilia is done, what is the new adjective to describe this relationship?
1: I'm saying intense competition, even when we sit in the BRICS, I'll just give you one example. You had Xi Jinping in a speech talked about uh, why the world should have true multilateralism. it should not do small cliques. And who is in the small cliques? That's India. We are in two small cliques led by the US. One is the Quad with Australia, Japan and the United States and the other uh, with Israel, United Arab Emirates and the United States. So there it was. I mean, the China and even Russia have been very strongly opposed to Indo-Pacific construct, opposed to the core. And Mr. Modi, in, in his speech, talked about resilient supply chains and trusted geographies, which is really saying China is the problem, that economically we need to distance ourselves from China on the economic front. So, so there we are. We're in the same bed, you can say, barely dreaming the same things and actually competing. And in fact, BRICS itself is becomes a theater for contestation. The reason why India is there, one is the path dependence, because in the post-Cold War years, we said, look, America is a problem, you need to hedge. But today, it's also about contesting with China and Africa in the global south. So just as China wants to use that forum for reaching out to the global south, India does the same. So it's really, I would say, the competitive dynamic has become far more consequential in the in the India, India-China case. On the economic side, I think, There are problems because though we have trade is growing, it is a deficit that's growing along with it. Almost $100 billion deficit for India with with China. Uh, The more the trade, the more the deficit. So what we've seen in the last five years under Mr. Modi, I know the globalizers in the free trade, champions don't agree with this, but I think India is very much with Trump and now with the Biden administration uh, saying that the uh, regional comprehensive economic partnership, Asia-wide free trade agreement is not good for India that it was going to be an instrument for China to to denude everybody of their industrial capabilities. And uh, since then, like you have industrial policy under under Biden, I think Mr Modi is doing the same, setting up production linked incentives in India to increase manufacturing. So the sense that, look, we need to reclaim manufacturing within India for the longer term to compete with China, uh, that is a big change that is taking place. So... Why is then still so much of trade? I, mean, I would say a large amount of interdependence has emerged over the last 30 years yeah. among the intermediate, intermediate range goods. So India is slowly trying to reduce that exposure. So it was easy to knock China out of the 5G competition in India. But every producer in India is importing components from China. Even a few weeks ago, when Apple says, guys, I want to produce iPhones, but I need my suppliers from China. So, on a case by case, we're still letting the Chinese come in. But the grand movement is to make more manufacturing in India and to eventually, in the event of uh, the China US economic competition growing more intense, be in a position today for the first time to attract Western manufacturing capital into India uh, so that we produce that synergy. And this way, when the US talks about resilient supply chains, trusted geographies, So I think we are finally coming together in Indian and U.S. industrial policy, our shared interest in technology, and to rework the globalized order uh, on the economic front. Not deglobalization, but a a recentralization of globalization, reducing the dependence on one key player in the manufacturing sector. So there, I think for the first time, India and the U.S. really are on the the same side.
0: On that point, I should say, five years ago, if you were to talk with executives at US and European multinationals, the view is always India could never replace China given the sophistication of China's manufacturing base. I think over the last year, certainly since Putin's invasion of Russia, but also in the wake of Xi Jinping's increasingly erratic and dictatorial behavior in China, Western executives are increasingly saying India has to be a place of of alternative because we can't be solely in China. So the, the conversation has shifted dramatically. And, and as is the case in, in other areas, a lot of this is simply in reaction to China's domestic behavior. I wanted to turn to BRICS you, you mentioned it. There is now another spate of commentary coming out, and I've seen this over the last several months, the end of the Western order. You're seeing this across a number of domains, commentary about the end of the dollar, frustration with US sanctions is leading to new sort of geopolitical financial realignment. We just had the, the BRICS summit in Johannesburg. And of course, coming out of that was commentary on a new multipolarity, end of the West. This is the counterpart of the, the G7. Can you, first of all, give your assessment of the the BRICS summit and, and at that higher elevation, What do you see BRICS representing? Is this now become a key focal point for a China-led emerging post-Western order? Or is it something different or less?
1: Well, it's certainly not going to be a China-led grouping. In fact, what we saw at BRICS is really India is pushing its own agenda. I think you have the contradiction between India and China, which has been coloring the BRICS outcomes. We sit with them in the SEO, when the paragraph comes on Belt and Road Initiative, so they have to mention other eight countries and women India saying these eight countries support Belgian world. Look, I think the contradictions were there to see. But the problem is this. There are groups in the global south who thinks every time you bring some people into one room, we're going to move this great revolutionary transformation of the world order. And you have their counterparts in the West uh, ready to say barbarians are at the gate. Oh my God, the system is falling apart. But I think, you know, it's really most of it is so ill-informed. And uh, what I've argued in the foreign policy article is really, this is not the first time attempts have been made to mobilize the global South. I mean, I go back to 1920 when Lenin organized the Congress of the Peoples of the East, trying to get everybody together to defeat the imperialists. That didn't work. We saw Mao setting. Light a fire across the prairie, all across Asia. That didn't work. Uh, Khrushchev aligned with, uh, Brezhnev and Khrushchev aligned with local nationalists to fight the Americans. So that seemed to work for a while in the 70s. But then back in 80, Americans were back, Vietnam was forgotten, Russians were on the defensive, and a decade later, it was Russia that was gone. So I think there is, but, but this, it is unfortunately neither the Wall Street nor the commentariat has any sense of history. So it's really, most of it is presentism and going by the slogan rather than seeing what's happening below the slogan. And if you look at the BRICS works today, I mean, Egypt and Ethiopia, <laughs> what's happening on the Nile uh, tells you the story. Uh, if you think Iran and Saudi Arabia, notwithstanding the Chinese so called diplomacy, are uh, they not buddies? You have UAE and Saudi Arabia, too, have differences. So this is going to be a bigger talk shop. So I think uh, other day somebody compared India's role in the e- BRICS as uh, Britain in the EU that don't let the Chinese dominate. So, so I would say, in fact, India's Delhi's contradiction with Beijing is much sharper than London's was ever with Brussels. So, so I think there are enough forces within BRICS to stop a China-led organization or a China-led world order. Uh, and what we see is just as in the 1970s, the Russians thought they are going to redo the global order. And But the Ch- Russian power peaked in the 1970s. You are the China expert. Maybe some people say Chinese power is peaking. So I think Xi Jinping's claims come at a time when China itself is on the defensive. So my sense is uh, that is the last thing that is likely to emerge, that China is going to reshape the global order, anything. But And finally, I would say, look, Asia is nationalist, if nothing else. We all became, throughout the yoke of imperialism, uh, less than 100 years ago. The idea that even Cambodia will merely roll over because we want to fight the West, to the Chinese dominance, there's no way. I think the problem has been the West has not done enough engagement. Now, last two years alone, both of you follow Asia so closely, how much has changed in Asia the moment the Biden administration started paying attention, in Japan, in Korea, in the Philippines. President Biden is going to go to Vietnam, I believe, in September. The strategic partnership is on the cards. So, do come and engage rather than simply either denouncing the third world elites or saying, oh, they're all just going to go under Chinese orbit. So I think there's a call for engagement. And I think hopefully we've seen some of it under the Biden administration. There'll be more engagement, more geopolitics in the Western policies rather than the lecturing on general themes what is good for you.
0: If I can, Raj, I want to one final question before I kick it over to Mike, which is on Taiwan. You've seen a gradual but clearly unmistakable upgrading in relations between Taipei and New Delhi. Of course, within New Delhi's one-China policy, just had the announced plan uh, opening of a third representative office in in Mumbai next year. News is out that the Indian military has ordered some sort of internal study on how a Taiwan crisis would would impact India. So two-part question, what's driving the shift? I suspect the answer will be something like Xi Jinping, but what's what's driving the shift? And I think the second one is, where does this go? What is the ceiling for India's upgrading of relations with, with Taiwan? And what do you think, if we were to see tensions continue to rise in the Taiwan Strait, what sort of role is India conceptualizing for itself, aside from what many countries say, which is back out of the room slowly.
1: Well, I would say just a bit of history. I mean, I think very few countries had as a rigid one China policy as India had. Going back to the founding of the PRC, Nehru said, Look, we're very clear we're going to fully back the PRC and quite the time the US was not recognizing China. So we said look, there's only one China. And we refused to engage with Republic of China. Although most countries, those who had a chance, they would do both. Chinese themselves, the PRC itself, did not prohibit that. But we took such an ideological position on one China. Uh, even after the 1962 war, we stuck with it. It's only after 1991 uh, that India says, look, mainly for economic reasons, uh, that Taiwanese capital will be valuable. So we started engaging there. In the last two decades, as we saw the problems with China mount, at least there was one view, we need to do more with, more with Taiwan. But Delhi was utterly reluctant because having a boundary problem that if we do more with Taiwan, would it provoke China into being more nasty? So that was a self-deterrent effect on India's policies when it came to to Taiwan. But I think, as we said, uh, Xi Jinping has partly cured us of that. But in any case, we have no goodwill. China has no goodwill for us. So our border problem is there, really. Really. And I think for the first time, I would say in the last three years, there is a recognition that a Taiwan contingency will also be an India contingency. But if Taiwan falls, China will be, not only the Asian geopolitics will change fundamentally, but we'll be the next in the line on the, on the Himalayas. Because arguments are the same, whether it is Taiwan, South China Sea, or the high Himalayas, where Chinese say, look, we have historic claims. These are our lands. We're just taking it back what belongs to us. Why are you guys so, you know, getting so upset? So I think if Taiwan falls, I think that is what is, that the recognition that, look, if Taiwan falls, we'll be next in the line. That I think is creating for the first time an awareness that, look, we need to do something about it. And that from being afraid of provoking China, under Modi, who has a much greater self-confidence, I would say, to say that look you engage taiwan this is china does it with pakistan china does it with sri lanka that by holding back we have not gained anything from china it's only by engaging taiwan actually we can increase our overall pieces that can be traded at some point on the on the, on the chessboard so so i think it's a mental attitude has changed less afraid and more willing to engage and i think the economic thing Uh, on the Taiwanese role in semiconductors, in Foxconn and its production growth in India. Uh, These are all coming together. So so I would say it's a more self-confident approach and a greater clarity of what does China's integration of Taiwan would mean for for us and for the rest of Asia.
0: We could spend several hours talking about China's increasing strategic glaucoma, which is, I think, its ability to see issues with full peripheral vision. And one of them, and I'll I'll turn it over to Mike in a second, but one of them is, I think China underappreciates that for an increasing number of states in the region, the Taiwan issue is increasingly as you just framed it, which is then what? And if you're the Philippines, if you're Vietnam, if you're Japan, I think you have very little comfort that the issue just stops at Taiwan. Because as you say, the framing is exactly the same. China just released, by the way, two days ago, a new historical map, territorial map, and that's not a comforting map if your states are on the region. So, so this is one where again, China is is its own is its own worst enemy, and through its own centrifugal forces, is sort of pulling countries together in concern over Chinese behavior and the trajectory of that Chinese behavior over the next decade, decade
2: and a half. I, I think that's. A really important point, Jude. And, you know, it's not just that the Chinese territorial claims are expansive. I think other states in the region, the Philippines, Australia, Korea, India, I think they see in the Taiwan scenarios, a willingness to take risk and use force that could be applied to them. But I also think they recognize increasingly that China's strategy for Taiwan is not separable from its strategy for the region. this is no longer a narrow cross-straits challenge. It's a regional strategy to the defense of Taiwan impossible by challenging the U.S. across the region, which means challenging not just Japan or Australia, but India and other states as well. I think there's a growing recognition that's pretty clear if you read between the lines in, in the Quad and other things that the security of the Western Pacific affects India. And in Japan, that the security of the Indian Ocean fundamentally affects Japan And I also would add, Raj, that too often Americans look at the U.S.-India relationship in a very narrow way or trilaterally with with the China factor. We're so used to trilateralism in our international relations study. But the fact is the India-Japan relationship is a huge lubricant for the U.S.-India relationship. I think it's probably much easier for Delhi to engage in these strategic shaping approaches because of Japan. Because when you said earlier, there was a sort of lingering affinity for China, even after the 62 war, because of this Pan-Asian solidarity. Well, you know who else has a bit of a history of Pan-Asian solidarity? It's Japan. And and it's bipartisan now between Delhi and India. And it, you and I were recently in a closed door session in Delhi, Japan, India, 1.5 track. And I was stunned at how forward leaning the strategic discussions were when Americans, other than me, of course, weren't in the room. So the Japan-India thing is bipartisan. It's strong. But these are two countries that aren't used to working with each other. What What do you see as the future? Is uh, you know, Japan has struggled to get arms sales to India, FDI, and uh, yen loans are up, but there's real limitations in capacity and the ability to get stuff done. So, what do you what, what should we expect for that really really important leg?
1: Well, I think it's really so much credit goes to Abe uh, Shinzo, and the ideas that he developed one going against the grain of including India in the Japanese perspective of uh, Asia. Of the Indo-Pacific, of seeing the confluence between Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, uh, to think about the Quad, to think about uh, constructing a new trans-ocean approach, which, which really helped bring India deeper into it. But I think there, there are limitations in the case of Japan. For example, their defence policy—it's I mean, it taken them a long time to change. Even today, when they talk about you know building a new defence industry, still the hesitation to actually translate the for example, on the arms transfers, for example, they've talked about reducing the restrictions on arms transfers, but that is really not translated into something concrete that India can, can benefit from. So I think the the kind of slow pace of change at the bureaucratic structure level, though in a, in a fundamental sense, they've changed a lot. So that remains a limitation. Second, the Japanese investments have not really flown in a big way uh, compared to the Korean or uh, now the Taiwan or even the U.S. On the, on the advanced sectors. So that's another uh, limitation. But the Japanese have done enormous service for India in, in investing in India's public goods, public infrastructure. So a lot of good things have happened. But one hopes that the current inflection point in Tokyo, that doubling defense expenditure, rethinking their role, uh, I would say that's really uh, might give us the much-needed boost. But I would say it's really the U.S. still has the Critical role in pushing Japan and India closer. Well, to be we today, a far more comfortable. You remember the original dialogue, trilateral dialogue we had, that was when we were still in the White House. Having the Americans in the room gave them a lot of comfort. But today, we do talk to each other, but I think the big strategic picture of using the Quad, using other formats, I think a U.S. leadership will still be needed to bring the these old allies in Asia, as well as new partners like India, into a more dynamic approach to regional security and strategy.
2: When you and I started that trilateral 2006, I think it was, with Rich Armitage and uh, Kasai-san and our friend Tarun Das and others, the the US was a bit like a matchmaker, for sure. The the, the India-Japan thing was really awkward. But As you know, after probably six years, the Indians and Japanese, those two delegations went off without us and started dating without inviting us at all. (laughs) Um, So it really has moved. Um, What about Australia? For a long time, I think basically since Kevin Rudd's uh, administration with the, the overall China policy, the ban on uranium exports and things like that, Delhi seemed to put Australia in the timeout chair. Um, but now that seems to be over, and if uh, there is so much enthusiasm and excitement about India in Australia right now. It's interesting. It reminds me of the U.S.-India transformation because the dia- it's geopolitics, but the diaspora in Australia is such a critical part of it, especially Western Sydney, parts of Melbourne. You know, Modi goes to Texas, meets with the community, and does Howdy Modi. He comes to Australia, and he does G'dayi Modi. <laughs> so it's really quite a similar kind of thing, and the Australian side is gangbusters on India right now but yeah. but what about in Delhi are people still cranky about Australia's past with India or or was that contrived was it was it even just sort of contrived so as not to do the quad what's the thinking about Australia
1: yeah I mean I would say on the
2: Indian diaspora
1: I mean you had three guys standing up on the Republican debate in, in Washington <laughs> the other day <laughs> three Indian origin people you had Ramaswamy you had Nikki Haley the harsh things so, so it really i think indian diaspora is doing well and largely in the english speaking world. i mean to put it more racially the anglo-saxon world is where the indian diaspora has done so well they're integrated into the political system they're occupying high positions in just the beginning uh, i think where you see uh, these guys are going to do, do very well a uh, part of the problem with, with australia was australia you know how they're the go-getting types and whatever the policies were, they would be the ones uh, really to push. Uh, so relationship really took an, you know, we never had good relationship throughout the uh, post-independence period. They we were part of the alliances, India was not, and uh, our economic policies diverged. Uh, it's only recently, thanks to Quad, we began to work together. But today, as you rightly said, there is really great enthusiasm, not only in Australia, but in India, but in India too. We see Australia, they can get things done, work with them, you can move things with them. So today, there's no none of the the hesitations a decade ago are part of it. And what I see is really that, in fact, our minister says, look, Australia is one of our best relationships that we have today in Asia. Uh, That is really a huge, huge change. And uh, Australia is a big, having them on your side actually can give you a lot of punching power around. Uh, So I think we are finally getting things done. And eventually, I hope we can do the same with Canada, with New Zealand, UK. That I think brings back where we started with, that India was a natural part of the Anglosphere, historically. I know it's not a happy term in some parts of the Anglosphere. But the natural connections that exist between India and the US, UK and Australia and Canada and New Zealand, I think they're finally coming into place. I would say US and Australia are way ahead. In the UK, we're getting closer to them. So my sense is this is going to be restored in a very different form, unlike in the empire where India was a, did not have agency. But today, uh, India has a huge agency in reshaping uh, the natural partners because Australia is a resource-producing country. India is going to industrialize. Same with Canada, with New Zealand. So, so I think we are at a very interesting moment with parts of empire that we kind of were very irritated
2: with in the past. I think sometimes that India and Australia are two great partners divided by cricket. Um, we 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 don't have any sports rivalries between the U.S. and India. That may be our secret. You know, Andrew Roberts' book, The History of the English Speaking People since 1900, which sort of picks up Churchill's famous book, is different in one very important respect, which is when you look at the cover, there's a huge flag of India. <laughs> he uh, he brings into the angle into the Anglo sphere. That point you make is interesting. Let me end Raj by asking you, sort of. What does India want? What's a, what's a strategic future that would be considered a success for Jai Shankar, for Modi, for the Indian foreign policy establishment? Is it a what? I'll give you a menu. Is it an Indian sphere of influence in South Asia and the Indian Ocean? Is it a stable multipolarity? Is it multilateralism? What's what's an Indian strategic future that the Jay Shankars and the Modis and the Siraj Mohans would consider success?
1: No, I think really for India, it's really at a at a good moment where. Its economy, after years of underperformance, uh, has picked up shape, and the partnership with the West uh, will accelerate India's economic growth. It's not just about aggregate numbers, but the idea that you can create prosperity for Indian people, just as uh, how, how much China has changed in partnership with the U.S. and the West uh, from the early '80s. So, I think that huge potential to make India a strong economy in partnership with the West. So that I would say is the first thing. Second. All these old ideas about getting a seat in the Security Council, we need to have a sphere of influence. But in India that becomes the third largest economy, has the massive resources and a talented pool of engineers and technologies and a a long established capitalist class. I think for the first time, we can think of a more of a global role that we can work with the West to shape new institutions in the future to work with U.S. and our partners, to contribute to the construction of a new international system and to help stabilize it. Those, I think, for the first time today, uh, India has those opportunities, both internal transformation, regional transformation, having a stable balance of power in Asia, and to create a, a global governance because we have to address climate change, we have to address uh artificial intelligence, the governing of all the systems. So all the great global challenges of today, uh, India will be in a position to contribute as it rises in the international system. And the key this time, unlike in the past, is that we are partners of the US and the West, as opposed to uh, creating for a long time, trying to create a trade union against the West. And I think that shift uh, gives us really a historic moment uh, to really lift ourselves up in the hierarchy uh, of the international system.
2: So for the American presidents who had a bold, positive vision for India's future, the FDRs, JFKs, Reagans, that would be a pretty good outcome. That would be what they would, would have foreseen and wanted. Raj, I feel like we could do eight episodes with you. We should probably let everybody go. Thanks so much for joining us, it's been great. Thank you, wonderful being with you both. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.